Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's C-Suite Conversations with Scott Miller. That's me. I'm your host. Each week you may recognize me as the host of Franklin Covey's other podcast on leadership with Scott Miller. Always put your name in the title. Great branding tip. Now with the world's largest weekly leadership podcast after 230 plus episodes. And what we learned is that the most popular episodes from the on leadership podcasts weren't always the Pulitzer Prize winning author or the business titan or the Hollywood celebrity, the big movie star. They were often people just like you and I that had very relatable journeys up to the C-suite. And today, our guest represents exactly that. His name is Ted Fleming. He is a, a, a seasoned executive in many companies, including Aetna, CVS. Now he's the author and on the speaking circuit for a new book around managing your career. Joining us from Connecticut, Ted, thanks for joining us on C-Suite Conversations. Thanks, Scott. Pleasure to be here. So, Ted, you are now an author and speaker. You're formerly the recent head of talent for CVS, where there were, I think, were nearly 300,000 employees, where you led a team responsible for building the careers and the retention, recruiting, and skill development for literally hundreds of thousands of associates. Today, we're going to talk about all things related to career tips. You have, I'm sure, conducted thousands of interviews, hired hundreds of people, probably been responsible for a couple of exits as well. What I'd like to do first is have you take a few minutes and maybe reorient our viewers and listeners to what's an amazing career. You, of course, are educated at Dartmouth and Duke. You've had some amazing appointments inside, inside some of the biggest brands America knows. Uh, take a few minutes and kind of walk us back through your own career journey. Thanks, Scott, and thank you for having me on the show. Um, you know, as I reflect on my 35-plus year career, uh, what really stands out or stood out for me is I have served most of it as an advisor. So I started out as a banker and I was advising CEOs and other people on mergers and acquisitions. Then from there, I started advising uh, executive teams and CEOs and C-suite folks on strategy. So I would run the strategic planning process. You know, where do you want to take the business? I also had chief of staff roles directly reporting to the uh, COOs and helping them achieve their results. And then finally, on the later stages of my career, I'd say the last uh, 15 years, I've been working with CHROs and focusing on what can we do to identify and develop the best talent. Ted, you and I have very little in common. You're both well-educated and well-dressed. But what we do have in common is a passion for people taking deliberate action over their careers. You and I share this idea that I think too often in people's lives, our careers are accidental as opposed to being very deliberate and strategic. Yes, there is serendipity that is involved in everybody's career, but you've written a book about you know, some topics, some key insights around career development. Talk a bit about the book that you recently offered, and we'll go a little bit deeper into your experience and wisdom around how to take control of your own career. Yeah, when, you know, when you're advising people, what I found is because your career is so personal, people avoid some of the tough topics. What, you know, what do you like behaviorally? Uh, what, do, what do you like to do? What are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? So I often found even at the executive level, uh, people spent more time buying a new car 
and researching their new car than they did managing their careers actively. So uh, the people that worked with me and the people that encouraged me to write the book said, you know, when I work with you, you give me concrete examples and you give me tools and tips and actionable steps that I can take right away. So the book is really in two parts. There are people that are looking for the right opportunity, and I talk about how to do that and give them tools. And then there are other people that really like their job, love their company, but they wanna know how do I accelerate my career? And as I'm sure we'll get into a little more, there is that, it seems like a chasm. How do I go and become a first time executive and C-suite leader? Ted, you've spent, like you mentioned, 30 plus years working at the highest levels of some of the most iconic brands, Aetna, most recently CVS. What do you think is an organization's responsibility as an employer to help employees manage their careers? We know now uh, in the midst of a pandemic, you know, hopefully post-ish pandemic, depending upon what country you're joining us from, that the average tenure of an employee now is, you know, gosh, somewhere south of 24 months. I heard recently kind of 18 months is a long career for some people. Given the fact that we know that attrition is, is, is some of the highest it's ever been, what is the, what's a company's responsibility in helping their employees manage and develop their own careers, as opposed to the employee owning it nearly entirely themselves? Right. I think it's very popular for people to say you own your own career, and that's a good philosophy to have, and I always encourage that. But if you really think about it, you only know half of the equation when you do that. The other half of the equation is what are employers looking for? What type of talent is needed in order to achieve our vision and mission in the future? And often the employer has the best and organizations have the best information. And so I think that we are responsible for both identifying talent and developing that talent. And that's just taking an organizational view. I also take a worldview and say, if we wanna build a better world, we are responsible for building, identifying and building and developing the best leaders possible. And it doesn't matter whether they stay with us. You know, a lot of times people just focus on their organization, but if we develop great talent and they leave, they're gonna go and be great someplace else. And that makes the world better. Let's take that a bit deeper. Like you, I served in the C-suite of a public company for the better part of a decade. And frequently someone would come in to me, whether they were on my team or in a different part of the company, they might come to me for some career advice. I actually managed my career, career quite well at, at both of my employers. I've only had two employers in my own 30-year career, Disney and the Franklin Covey Company, four years and about 26 years respectively. And a, a hardworking, well-intended employee, often from another division, would come into me for some career advice. And they'd be thinking about applying for a job that was either posted or they heard it might be coming. Very excited about it and such. And I always had the similar thought, gosh, if only you knew what was really happening behind the scenes. If only you knew budgets were going to get cut or this acquisition was happening or you don't want to work for that leader or this is the wrong job for you. And, you know, there's this phrase, you're never in the room when your career is decided for you. And as, as sort of vulgar as that is, there's also some truth to it. 
what advice would you give to people who perhaps don't have the level of transparency in an organization to really know what's going on, either because there's some fiduciary or proprietary information that's confidential, it isn't appropriate to share. You might argue that some large portion of employees are at a disadvantage because they don't really have all the facts other than what they know in their small world, and they're excited about something that gets shut down or gets stymied because of things independent of them. It's a kind of a broad question, but what advice would you give to individuals who are looking to get promoted in their organization or perhaps enter a new organization to recognize there's just some things you can't control? Right. You know, that's a complex question, but I think it's a very important one. So I have two responses to that. Number one, and I'm sure you've had it on tons of other uh, of your shows, is the networking. Networking is important because, again, you start with just what you know, but through networking and conversations, you can learn more about where the organization is, the resources, stuff like that. So I start with that. And if you're within a company, I call it four different types of company networking. So if you're inside a company, number one is industry networking. You should always be speaking with people to increase your business acumen about your industry. Now that, and by, and to do that, you can speak to people both inside your organization and outside your organization. But what's going on in the industry? Number two, there's the company networking. And if you work for a large organization, some of these organizations are the size of a large city. So think about all the people you know in your town or don't know in your town. So you have to take the time to find out what's going on within the organization. That'll help you in the long run. Then there's social networking, what we all think about. Who do you know and who can they introduce you to? And then finally, role networking. Whatever job you have, talk to people that have the same job outside your industry. Because often what happens in one industry, what is mundane in one industry, can transform another industry. So that's my first piece of advice. So I'll pause there in case you uh, have a comment on that. Well, I think it's a great point, right? Because for many of us that may have long tenures inside of our organizations, our networks become those people that we work with, the same 10 people every day, you know, year in, year out. And we've got to make sure that we are pollinating and nurturing our networks, not just in the broader organization, but in industry as well. And perhaps other industries that we're not just pigeonholed into one industry and my own network is only pharma or it's only finance or it's only high tech. I think I wrote, I read recently where you wrote that there were three types of high school cliques that all leaders should know about and we can learn from. Now that gave me a little bit of anxiety as I was thinking back to high school and my, um, my wildcat days, go wildcats. Uh, let's, uh, let's relearn what those three high school cliques are and what we have to learn from them. So when we talk about that, I, I think the main point of that blog was simply that politics we are social animals, right? And so politics doesn't go away. The clicks don't go away. Now, hopefully, so that we people don't have anxiety as I'm saying this and we're talking about it, uh, we grow up, we mature. 
But having said that, when you think about the old high school cliques, right? You think about the jocks, right? You think about those jocks. And, and they that, were that was my popular. clique, by the way. That's the group I was in. Yeah. There you go. Hardly. Oh Are you kidding me? I, I so desperately wanted to be in that group. Ted, thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I know we all do. So those are very popular people. And because of their popularity, people gravitated towards them. And, but what you need to know about those clique, that particular clique, is they were able to get by because they were handsome or beautiful, they, they did very well in athletics. And so a lot of people were around them and so they got a lot of information. So when you're thinking about your company, the question is, who are the people that drive the results in your organization? That's the equivalent of the athlete. So you're, hold there, you're basically saying, seek out the Scott Millers in every organization because they are the exactly. jobs. And the, yeah, exactly, that's okay. right. All right, just you're wanted to clarify that. Keep yeah, I, I, you know, you, you, you got it. You got it. So the idea here is what drives your organization? And that'll be different. And often when I am with clients, I tell them which departments contribute the most amount of revenue, yeah. which departments contribute the most amount of profit, which departments have the most resources or the most FTEs. These are locuses of power that you have to tap into. And when you're in the C-suite, you have to know how to network, manage, guide those uh, areas of power so that you can achieve the results you want. Uh, there, there's another click, as you know, which are, you know, the nerds or the geeks. No, no, never met them. Never met them. That's the, that's the group I was with. Uh, I wore, I, fessing up, I had a calculator on my belt and I had the thick black glasses and yes, I was, uh, yeah, so I was in the chess club. So yes, I, I get it. That was me. But what we're talking about really is where these folks and the folks in this clique, right, had the brains, right? So who are the brains of your organization? Where do the new ideas come from, right? Where the, who are the people that know how to use and, and adapt and adopt the new technologies? You want to tap into that. So that's another, uh, that's another click. And then finally, you know, there's the artists. Those are the folks, sometimes people say they're the goths and they, they intermingle with, with the artists. But these are people that have insane natural ability and you wanna be able to take advantage of that, but they may or may not fit into the overall uh, culture. They don't, they don't, you know, they don't wanna go on all the company picnics. They wanna be left alone, but you still need their talents and abilities. And as a C-suite leader, do you know how to harness that? Do you know how to give them the right resources? Uh, because they're not gonna be as popular. There's actually a fourth click. It's that guy who ran for student body president and gave out parking tickets to all his college or his high school friends because of all the power he had. For that was the click <laughs> of great. one. So, Ted Pivot. It's actually actually it's both anxiety ridden, but it's also a great metaphor because as you were thinking about those the jocks and the nerds, so to speak, and the arts artsy people, the creative people, it's interesting to see. As I was thinking about colleagues in the company, right? It's very true. Mm -hmm. Um, there probably are some more clicks. You also write about the politics inside organizations. And I think you defined 
I'm not mistaken, kind of four types of political cultures. And I don't think any organization likes to talk about politics in their company, right? I bet with every organization, when you get people together, there is going to be culture and there's going to be politics. Speak to the role that politics play in organizations and how people should kind of just acknowledge it and assimilate into it. Not all politics is bad. In essence, it's kind of how things get done around here. Speak to the importance of understanding and perhaps even assimilating into the politics that drive any organization. Right. And yeah, I encourage people to go on my blog to read in greater detail because there's a lot of research. It's not my research, but there's a lot of research behind that that's very important. So a couple of things. Number one is just a straight mindset. The mindset is politics, as you were inferring, Scott, politics isn't good or bad. If you can just have that mindset, it's not good or inherently bad. It's just the way things get done across a social system. So that's your first step, that mindset. Then what you want to do is you want to analyze what, well, what is the political culture like in your organization? Some are very minimal, right? And those, if they're minimal politics, you can think of that as like the meritocracy, right? That's what we all hold up. It's like you advance just based on your results. You advance just based on your talents and that's it. And if you're one of those, when we were talking about some of those creative types, they might gravitate to that type of political environment where I'm just going to get paid for what I do. I'm going to get recognized for what I do. Then you can go up a notch where it's uh, there's a political environment where, and this is can be tough for some people, there's a political environment where we say one thing, right? We're, we really believe in teams, collaboration, working together, uh, but sometimes we don't always act the way we say. And so when you recognize that environment, that's not necessarily bad, but the idea is we want to live up to a set of ideals, but the reality of the day-to-day -day of the organization may not be that. So when you think about that, if you are consider yourself a team player, you really like working in groups, right? You like and you get energy from other people, that may be the best place for you. Then you get into organizations that are very political, right? Uh, there, what it is, is people get paid for and recognized for delivering results. They understand that gamesmanship happens. And sometimes we're much more open about our dissent. People will call each other out, right? Sometimes it's been very popular, the radical transparency. So you might think about uh, that type of environment. And so in that environment, you're much more of an individual person who has a lot of faith in themselves and is willing to bend the rules, right? You're, you're like, this is a game, right? It's a game and we're gonna do whatever we need to do in order to succeed. And then finally, there's one that you know, is a, a very uh, political environment, almost toxic. That's not something that we want. But there are people that can survive in those toxic environments. We, 
in that environment, people call each other out. And uh, I don't recommend that type of environment. I don't know a lot of people that love that type of environment. But if you're the type of person that just says, hey, this is a game I want to win, it's a zero-sum game, then that organization might be for you. Ted, I want to finish our time today with a speed round. First, would you remind everybody the title of the career book that you've recently released? Yes, it's developed seven practical tools to take charge of your career. Thank you, sir. We'll put that in the show notes as well. I want to do a speed round with you, and, and there's no right or wrong answer. I'm going to ask you sure. a pointed question and kind of tell me the first thing that comes to your mind, recognizing that there's always a backstory and it will have this or that and situational. So just kind of answer it with your heart. Uh, the person who lands the job because of a great interview did what? They were able to clearly communicate the value they can bring to the organization. Amen. The person who was the leading candidate that blows it in an interview did what? They often didn't prepare uh, or they had a huge uh, red flag. You know, they just did not communicate their value well or connect with the interviewer. The careers you've seen that have had the highest trajectory have what in common? I say this and I tell people this is 80% of the people that are in the C-suite. At some point in their career, they were given an opportunity that they were not ready for, but their mentors and sponsors had faith in them and they pushed them and they pushed themselves to do a great job. Most consistently when you've seen a career implode and someone literally loses their job, not because of some economic outside force, those reasons are typically what? Personal flaws, inability to work well across boundaries, not having a strategic mindset, or not having a theory of the business, meaning they don't, once they got in charge, they didn't have a clear indication of how to move the organization forward. People who have the most successful first 90 days of a career inside an organization do what? They seek to understand before being understood. You're saying that listening is in fact a leadership competency. It is one of the most important ones. When candidates are interviewing for jobs in September 2022, what are the values that most candidates are now looking to match within organizations? What are the most, what are the most frequent questions interviewees ask of the interviewer? Interviewees ask the right. interviewer. Yeah. The interviewees uh, wanna know about the culture and they wanna know about flexibility, right? They, they want autonomy and mastery and they want to know what they will have collectively in order to achieve their goals. And that usually means authority, and resources. What's the biggest, most common mistake professionals make when they're searching for and accept jobs that end up being the wrong fit or the right role, wrong role for them? They really underestimate or did not sufficiently research cultural fit. If it's, it's just a killer. If you're not ultimately a match for the culture and the politics and the way things are done, you're not going to succeed long term. Let's expand on that because we heard for decades this idea of, you know, well, 
you're not a cultural fit for us. And then we kind of heard it flip the last couple of years on, well, why should they have to fit into our culture? Maybe our culture should actually fit into them. And I now it's kind of all effed up, right? I, mean, I don't know what the answer is there. Talk about what is the role that culture plays in both making sure you have the right person assimilating into your culture. Because if you think you're going to change the culture of, Q, or of, of CVS overnight, you're wrong. Right. And, and also, you got to have a culture that's nimble enough to track a broad array of talents and diversity and all of that as well. What's the right um, crucible there, if you will? Right. So for me, this is, uh, this is not an answer, meaning there, there's not like this great thing. It's more like an equalizer uh, for those that remember on the old stereos. This is something that will be a constant conversation. I think organizations recognize, certainly Fortune 500 companies recognize, we need to do a much better job being inclusive and creating environments where people of more diverse backgrounds and experiences can be welcome within our organizations. So that's one thing. Having said that, it is still also true that if you are an employee, you have to mesh at least you have to agree with the mission, why it exists. You have to agree with the vision, where they're going, and you have to have a way to help with the strategy. Uh, you, I, and I can add value to the goals of the organization. Ted, until recently, as I mentioned in our opening, you were the head of talent development at CVS, 300,000 people across your organization. This final question, I'd like it to be a little bit uh, industry company agnostic. So okay. pretend you're the head of talent for Tesla, Walt Disney Company, QVC, Exxon Oil, and the BBC. Like pick, you know, industry agnostic. Okay. Um, and stock options with all of those, by the way, that will vest in 90 I'm days. Good. There you go. Yeah. Uh, what are the talents you're looking for? Whether the person is an engineer, left brain, right brain, whether they're a leader, whether they're the C-suite, whether they're coming out of college, what are the three or four or five skills you think everybody needs to have to build a great career, industry, technical skills, agnostic, in 2022 right. and beyond? Yeah, I would say the biggest one is we're seeing a compression. We used to bucket people, right? We used to say they were strategic or they were executors. We used to say they were you know, operators, technicians, or you know, they were functional people. So what you're seeing is this compression between strategic ability and strategic and operational execution. So what we're looking for today and in the future is we're looking for people that can help facilitate the conversations that say, how are we gonna get to our goal and have the ability to understand the business models and the operating models to execute on that. So I would say that's the largest thing. And so that's at all levels. We used to just delegate that to quote, the leaders or the senior uh, people or the C-suite. We need that at every level. So I would say that's one. And then the other thing, which I'm, I, I've heard you say many times, Scott, is just that ability to learn and be flexible. Like you said, when you learned about AI before uh, uh, for a client, you know, you just have to be able to learn things quickly and be comfortable with the learning process. Ted, take it a step further. I know our time is, is nearly up here. 
I mentioned I'm the father of three young boys with my wife, Stephanie. Our sons are 8, 10, and 12. And we work very hard and are privileged to be able to put them into some private school until we can't. But so far, so good. And my oldest son is in seventh grade. And he goes to a fine school. And the things that he's learning, I find kind of quite frustrating because he's spending so much time now on algebra and on, you know, certain other skills that are important for you to pass the SAT to get into Dartmouth, like you did, into Duke and others. But the fact of the matter is, I'm a 54-year-old I'm a executive. I couldn't complete an algebraic equation if my life depended upon it, nor have I ever in my 30-year career. But what I had to do countless times is read a P&L, manage a budget, build products and launch them successfully, have high courage conversation with colleagues about their blind spots, be able to recognize when I owed someone an apology, sit down in a room with people of 15 different backgrounds and, and, and educations and economic upbringings and come to consensus around a topic, be able to communicate my ideas in a persuasive way that did not confuse my opinions with facts, being able to admit when I was wrong. These are all skills that are really kind of human relation skills. Yes, we need engineers. Yes, we need mathematicians. Yes, we need people that understand AI. But isn't it true that regardless of our function, we've all got to be able to communicate well, reduce our thoughts into sort of written or you know, succinct verbal words, being able to manage projects and basically get along well with other people. These are crucial skills. Yeah, and I think the the younger generations, they are good at that when you compare to uh, baby boomers and, and others, is the ability to collaborate. I think social media has done that and people are good at that. But you are talking about universal things and I absolutely agree, Scott. There is no magic here. We need emotional intelligence. Doesn't matter how gifted you are, if you just don't have those components of good emotional intelligence and understand yourself and can relate with others, you're 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 going to be in trouble. And then the last is just the point of education is to prepare you for a future that doesn't exist. Yeah. So your ability to deal with ambiguity and learn as you go and experiment is important. Yeah, well said. I think probably never more than this generation are graduating students going to have to have high technical skills, whether it be coding or whatever it is, regardless of what job you're in, and balance that high tech capability with what we call the soft skills, right? The people skills, being able to actually get along with and influence others through being trusted and making and keeping commitments and being persuasive in our communications. Ted Fleming, you're the former head of talent development for CVS. You're now a coach, an author, a speaker. Tell us again the name of your book and if you will be so kind as to show your book back on screen. I'd love for people to pick up a copy of your new book. I would love that also. Develop seven practical tools to take charge of your career. Uh, also, you can follow me on uh, LinkedIn and you can go to tedfleming.com to uh, read my latest blogs. Ted Fleming, you're a class act. Thank you for joining us today on C-Suite Conversations. Best of success in your coming uh, speaking and coaching as well. Thanks for your time. Thank you. And we'll see you back here next week for a new conversation from the C-Suite. <laughs>